Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Biblical Frame. My name is Ed Gerber, and I'm delighted to host uh, the conversation today. We once again have some guests you will have encountered before. I'll let them introduce themselves. Uh, But I am here along with some of the regulars. I'm Jan Zimmerman, Professor of Theology from Regent College. Ivan De Silva, retired Vancouver Police Detective and Instructor in Religious Studies at Trinity Western University. We're going to continue our conversation with uh, journalists, and so I will allow them to introduce themselves. This is Jeff Sandus. I am a freelance reporter with the Epic Times. I'm Lee Harding. I live in Regina. I'm a freelance contributor to Epoch Times and Western Standard, a research fellow for the Frontier Center of Public Policy, and I interned for CBC and CTV, and I worked casually for Global, and also had a stint with Hunter Huntley Street. Thanks again, guys, for being with us. I know our last conversation was fruitful and fascinating, and lots more to talk about. Ivan, you are going to offer a little summary of some theological grounding for us, and then we'll, uh, we'll jump in with some questions. Yeah, so the purpose of this podcast is to enlighten our readers on the role that the media plays uh, in our society and the role that the media did play during the last crisis, the COVID crisis. And um, what we want to do is to, what we're hoping to do is to help our listeners to know how to view the media, uh, how to analyze the media. Uh, and the reason for that is because, as I found, as I found for myself, and as we all uh, have found during this crisis, the uh, the opinions on on it were were stifled until only one narrative, one voice was allowed to speak, uh, one official voice, and all, all other voices were either cancelled or, in some way or another not allowed in the public square. And when that happens, when you only have one voice allowed, I think it does bad things to society. And we know that because the Bible also makes it very clear that when matters of public importance uh, are at stake, matters should not be just settled by one voice. You need a multiplicity of witnesses in order to establish the facts. And during this crisis, I didn't think we were getting that. And uh, from our main media sources that most people, um, most people experience or most people go to, if they wanted to get that alternative voice, they had to go and dig deep. And uh, with always the sense of that they were doing something uh, conspiratorial or something maybe not uh, not best that it was somehow tainted it seemed because here was the official narrative the clean narrative the pure narrative and if you're going somewhere else it was because you were sort of sulking in the darkness and trying to find the truth so that is our purpose for these segments um my own my own summary of this would be and uh, trust but verify and we need to do that with the media but we'll take it from there so one of the questions we would like to explore here at the beginning is, what role does the media play in democracy, in maintaining democracy, in protecting democracy, in uh, passing democracy on through the generations? Does, uh, does, does democracy hang uh, 
in the media or with the media so that the media can affect the way the society goes, the democratic, uh, democratic society, or is it the way the democracy goes, the media goes? Can we explore that issue? How important is the media to a democracy? Jeff, you go first. I see it, I think, a little differently than maybe the framework that we're presenting it. A journalist, in my opinion, is only supposed to report, but what it has turned into is the journalist is there to create the talking points. And if we are going to report talking points that concentrate on one theme, then we're not doing our job to inform the public. And we are a, we play a role in informing everybody what is going on in society and in particular how our governments are making decisions. And in the past, it used to matter. Like here in British Columbia, for those who have been here, you might remember Glenn Clark, our premier, he got a neighbor to build a deck or something for him in turn for a political favor. That one scandal, that was the end of him. Gordon Campbell, he, while well, he got caught drinking and driving, I wouldn't say that that was a scandal so much, but he ended up um, lying about the harmonized sales tax and that dogged him by the media for several months until, boom, he was gone. And now we're in a society where the Trudeau administration, there are, what, five ethics violations and counting? I mean, they still have virtually the same support that they've had for years. And so as you know, a democracy, it doesn't matter what the... <laughs> it doesn't matter what the actual truth is because we've created a society somehow that makes it, I guess it, there's a boogeyman that we always have to fear. And maybe that's where we as journalists are not doing our job effectively or again, I, I'm seeing this from a different perspective, but it's not my job to preserve democracy because there's other, there's other, sort of parts of society that contribute to that. But it is my job to take whatever the issue is and say, this is what the government says. This is why they support it. This is why they don't. Here's somebody that's affected by it and here's somebody that's going to benefit from it. You take the skill we've learned to be good writers, we put it all together, and then you as Joe Public can decide how you're going to interpret it. Nowadays, it's here's what the government says, and then we go to our own, you know, expert based on what our media, you know, outlet is that's going to either support it or not. And that's how it tends to get presented. And because we're in a culture that we migrate to what we want to hear, if that's what we want to hear, you're, I'm going to give it to you. I only freelance and do this part time. And I have 
more time than most of our journalists in Canada have to craft a story and interview people. And so when I pitch a story, I have a much longer time frame or shelf life to work with. But, you know, a lot of the stuff, it needs to come out now because it's going to be on the internet. Our competitor is going to have a story. We have to frame it our way. So, yeah, I, I guess to answer your question, we do play a role, but I was, I don't want to quite say that it's, uh, it has as much impact anymore when, you know, 30 years ago, somebody would lose their, their job as premier over one scandal compared to today where you can have countless scandals and still be supported. I'm interested what Lee has to say because you're, you're, you're close to me in age and, uh, and you do this full time, and so you'd be able to sort of have a, a good idea on how that that plays. Well, I think we're talking about when we think of the purpose of the media, the role it plays. There's theoretical ones, and then there's more practical ones. So, in a democracy, if you don't have a free press, then you can't have an informed public that can debate and reach conclusions uh, from a basis of knowledge. Uh, so if we contrast that with an authoritarian society, they will, I mean, state media is, that's the, that's the truth <laughs> to them. Pravda, when it was created, that means truth. So the, the Bolsheviks set up in Russia and they said, okay, this is what truth is, what the government tells you. That's why this trusted news initiative and this sort of thing, if the authorities say it, it's true. That's why it's scary is because this is just coming back in a different form. From a practical perspective, journalism works in other ways. So some people have said the way journalism works is actually selling viewers to advertisers. So your purpose is just to get people watching what you're talking about so that someone will pay for it. Um, in a more noble framework, mm -hmm. it's, well, that's just a means to an end, and you're doing this for better reasons. When I, I think without... If certain fires don't get air, they just don't burn. And sometimes people really crave to hear a voice that validates what they're thinking. And when those voices aren't there, they can tend to dismiss their own conclusions or believe that they are alone in them or believe that they cannot do anything with them. It will lead nowhere. And that's why. And then at other times when uh, with certain narratives, we talked about climate change in our previous show with certain narratives if you think a different way uh there's only so many times where you can say there's another side to the story and the other side is determined to just push their narrative that you kind of give up as well mm -hmm. so i think journalism is very important uh, washington post said that democracy dies in darkness now i don't know if the washington post is uh, fighting that darkness or they're part of the darkness it really depends on what the article is, but it definitely plays an important role. And that's why the efforts by the Trudeau government to influence media, not just through the subsidies uh, to the CBC, the public broadcaster, but it also through the um, $600 million. I mean, most of that is tax breaks, but some of it is going to community papers. Uh, the margins are so thin on journalism now that, these subsidies are make or break. I just wrote about how Pierre Polyev, it's not just going to be the CBC that's against him because he might cut their billion dollar subsidy. It's the mainstream press as well. 
because in the back of their minds, they may not have a job if he wins, and they know it. And that kind of influence cannot uh, be discounted. So, yes, uh, journalism plays an important role. Uh, and I think as far as making a difference in this environment, um, people like Jeff and I are, are among the few that really can make that difference because we are the journalists. And I've always thought that Gandhi's words, be the change that you want to see in the world, are important, whether it's talking about what the church should be or shouldn't be, or journalism. Uh, let's fill in the gaps and uh, be that thing and take it from that angle that we don't think is out there. All right. <clears throat> Excellent. Thank you. Um, can, can, can I yes, ask yes. one question? So uh, y uh, you mentioned the ideal um, role of, of, the, of the press, of journalism for supporting democracy by informing the voter, as it were, right, to give information uh, so that we can form our minds and then exercise our freedom to vote. Um, so one side is if journalism does do that. Do you, do you, do both of you, either of you, see any problem with the kind of people that we now have? Like, are we even capable of democracy, or have we become so stupid, or so, um, you know, malformed in many ways, or so apathetic um, that uh, democracy won't work in some ways, no matter what you do? I'm putting this a bit polemically, but you know what I mean. Like, there's two sides of this, right? There's the informing of the of the journalists, but you also need some kind of people eager for uh, for intelligent information to be formed, rather than just being served the dish of memes and easy stories, so that you can conform. Democracy Jeff. is a changing definition in our society. I mean, there was a time when. Uh, Saddam Hussein had more than 99% of the vote. And do we believe that was because Iraqis really supported him or they felt there would be repercussions if they didn't? And we have, like, if we were to go and say to a journalist or a media outlet, you know, you're a hack, which is a slur in the industry, or you, uh, you're fake news they're not going to accept it. They're like, no, you are right. Like it's what I'm doing it. I'm doing it properly. And we, again, I, because I see that we're, we're embracing something other than truth in our society. Now, whether we've been trained to do that, or the side effects of looking at our phones all day long or something. Democracy isn't, you know, what we have traditionally interpreted as freedom because the, the, in my feeling that's going to be happening in our Western culture, they're going to be finding ways to legally suppress what we would say is truth in order to keep their power And that'll still be under the framework of democracy. And so as a journalist, does it matter if we are going to do our research and tell the public, you know, all sides so that they're informed if it's only going to be suppressed at some point? That's, that's how I've been sort of seeing this. Well, you know, 
conservatives have often criticized the CBC as being left-leaning. Um, I think that part of the problem is that the university system is spitting out a certain kind of person. So there's limits to what you can really draw on. Uh, McDonald Laurier Institute did a panel, I think it was in June, on this whole topic. Uh, is it defend or defund the CBC? And Tara Henley, who had done a lot of work for CBC over the years, said, yeah, there is a problem. She said, I think there's some legitimacy to thinking there's a left-leaning bias because you have a lot of university-educated urbanites who are there. And so they don't even recognize their blind spots. They just think, well, that's the way it is. And those other people that think the other way, you know, well, that's them um, on the fringes. So we see this disconnect a lot. And I think a lot of it has to do with the efforts of the cultural Marxists to really take over the institutions and to have people thinking and acting their way. And so we've had generations of this now to where uh, all the polls that are done of even in Canada and the United States of academia show that they are predominantly left. And this is translating into the kind of journalists that we have. Now, as far as what the public is and, and, uh, I do think that the, the less you know, the less critical thinking skills you have, uh, the, the less you are going to cope with this, and uh, the more pliable you are to being influenced. And the degree of power that Google and Facebook has is enormous. Uh, Robert Epstein has been researching just how, if you look up something on Google and it's on the front page or in the top listing. I mean, people will normally just click on the top thing. Oh, I look up this, here's the first article, click, right? The power that they're finding this has in behavioral studies, which are not easy to do, by the way, to do them correctly, uh, is easy. And uh, they do, so basically, you know, Google is electing people uh, because not entirely, but through all these this confluence of forces, we are seeing a lot of influence going on. And now we have the federal government actually hiring behavioral scientists uh, to basically nudge the Canadian public. And so this has always been gone, um, but the tools that they have to work with are putting an enormous amount of power into the hands of a few. And uh, it's something that we need to be on guard against in journalism and uh, in some broader fields than that. Here's a little historical perspective by a scholar called Rivero, quoted in Elul, his propaganda. In the 19th century, the problem of opinion formation through the expression of thought was essentially a problem of contacts between the state and the individual, italicized, and a problem of acquisition of a freedom. But today, thanks to the mass media, the individual finds himself outside the battle. The debate is between the state and powerful groups. Freedom to express ideas is no longer at stake in this debate. What we have is mastery and domination by the state or by some powerful groups over the whole of the technical media of or opinion formation. The individual has no access to them. He is no longer a participant in this battle for this free expression of ideas. He is the stake. What matters for him is which voice he will be permitted to hear and which words will have the power to obsess him.
All true. I think back to Bernays on this, where mm-hmm. he, he when he starts out his book Propaganda in 1928, he says, okay, we could conceive of a group of experts in various fields that decide how we should do things, but people don't want that. They want to have their own ideas. And his solution, he says, and, and it, he says it's part of making democracy work, is that you basically make them think the way you want them to so that they will think it's their idea when they follow through and that democracy is like that too so uh so in the view of the people who want to tell us what to buy what to think what to where where to go how to live they're viewing propaganda the media as an extension of propaganda and that is affecting a whole lot of things and it has for at least a hundred years um Bernays was part of the Creel Commission, which influenced the United States to enter World War I. That was its very purpose. And President uh, Wilson had campaigned uh, on the slogan, he kept us out of the war and won. And yet he formed a committee to bring America into the war. Uh, They censored some of the mailings from the anti-war groups right out of the post office and sent people to do four-minute speeches everywhere. Well, all of a sudden, the public wants to be in the war, and they they get in the war. So there has always been this relationship between propaganda and the state, Mm -hmm. and then how do people get elected? Well, Bernays says, yes, they're elected by the popular vote, but he says it starts with a handful of people in a single room. That's right. And he would know because he's worked with the president. So his whole thing is the new salesmanship of propaganda is to make make people believe and buy what you want them to, but make it think it's their idea. And um, they do it in a whole lot of subtle ways through group psychology and following herds. That's why we have people like Leonardo DiCaprio talking about the oil sands. Is he an expert? Doesn't matter. If, If some of the things he says out of his mere popularity, people will believe him. So these are the sorts of forces that we're working with, um, even in fields of science and medicine. If you follow the money, you'll see the influences are concentrating. I, I think, you know, you put your finger on a, on, on a larger pattern. I think people really need to see, if you, if you read precisely in these areas, like let's say industrial military complex, the pharma and geopolitical goals and how they're pursued, let's say, by the United States, it's that same pattern where you spread the kind of information you want you find salespeople among popular culture, whether it be actors or whatever it is, to bring that message out now on social media, and you literally reshape reality for people, and then you get your stuff done. Like That's how it works in all these different disciplines. When you talk about medicine, the way they sell pharma, pharmaceuticals, or, uh, or whatever else it, it is. Like whether you frame the next person as, you know, the next, you know, the the person of the country you wanted to stabilize is going to be the next Hitler. You're going to find examples. You're going to smear him. You put those names and labels out there and boom. It's, it's across the spectrum that this kind of propagandistic um, approach is used. So, so I think are, are you saying that we're, we're a democracy in theory, but de facto um, we are so influenced and we can be so manipulated as to be the puppets of a puppeteer? Yeah, Those who so. are I mean, forming public opinion by this unbelievably powerful machinery of the modern media. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it, just those two, I mean, uh, we've mentioned the, the one area, but the, the medicine, I'm, I told you, I'm just reading this book, uh, Selling Sickness, 
um, where the where these kind of methods are clearly described, uh, whether it's uh, for cholesterol medicine or um, you know uh, whatever other medicines are deemed to be, we want to sell them to the healthy people. So we need to reshape the reality so people buy it, or whether it's the U.S. in its multiple attempts over the last thirty or longer years to destabilize certain countries so they get at oil or whatever it is that they need to secure. Same pattern, like you know whoever is in charge and that. Uh, if it's a leader who is not um, congenial to the United States, he needs to get ousted, he needs to get smeared, he needs to get described in a certain way. Situation needs to be made unbearable to the public so we can send to the military with consent, and boom, and we change it. It's the same pattern across us, um, you know, several areas. I think. It reminds me of the Psalms. If you read the Psalms kind of from beginning to end, it is staggering, and then read them alongside the Proverbs, the wisdom literature, how often the tongue the mouth speech is mentioned, and how detestable lies and obfuscations are to the Lord. Um, but but we have been given a power to lie today and uh, shape public opinion in a way that is going to benefit few and harm many. So uh, on that, maybe we can touch on the next sort of media question that we haven't talked about, at least in this segment. Um, so given that we're assuming that some of these forces are in play, then... Like, what is news? How are decisions made as to what is newsworthy or what qualifies as news? What get, gets out there? What gets, what does not get out there in your guys' experience? I'd like Jeff to speak to this one first, just because I talk too much. <laughs> Everything you say, every word is gold, Lee. This is something you that has also changed in recent years. What used to be considered news was the same thing in every outlet. So an example that demonstrates how it's changed is I was listening to National Post Radio. I can't remember the exact date, but there was a terrorist attack in Spain and Canadians died. And that was, uh, it would be very early in the morning Canada time because it was 7 a.m. or something like that in Spain. That would be the leading headline in every newscast, radio cast, internet. Like it would be the lead story for everything. Used to be. The day before that, uh, I, I was listening to this uh, press conference that Donald Trump had on infrastructure. And that was a few days after the Charlottesville uh, craziness, ter- tragedy that happened. And the host of National Post Radio, Ashley Chinati, and her very liberal producer, instead of starting off with the terrorist attack where Canadians died, they were high-fiving each other and popping champagne and talking about, we finally got them, we've got proof that Trump is racist. And they cited this this press conference, and I listened to it, I'm like, I, I don't even remember anything like that. Here we are in Canada... With Canadian, dead Canadians, all of a sudden it's no longer a story. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump was. I don't know why. And in fact, he, he didn't even say anything racist in that press conference. I went back and read the transcript. But this is how things have now shifted. Last, last episode, uh, when we had uh, our former CBC uh, contributor, uh, David... Daily. Yeah. He... Um, you know, he, he talked about, he, he sort of touched on, on this, like he goes to Epic Times because 
that's the only place he gets the other side of the story. And so now we've all kind of determined who our readers are, our listeners, and we are going to give them the stories that they want to have. And this is now how an editorial staff is going to make decisions on what constitutes a story. Whereas when I worked for a community newspaper, there were two newspapers in our town, pretty big city. And if there was something on the Surrey Hospital or whatever that one missed, it was a complete embarrassment that we didn't have that story as well. And we got scooped on it. It doesn't matter now. You align yourself with other media outlets based on your sort of your angle that you are you know, sort of, like I say, aligned with, and you promote the other media outlets that get stories that you are going to agree with, and you play hall monitor on the ones that you don't. And we're not here to compete for viewers and readers anymore. We're just here to kind of keep feeding the fodder. So that's a, that's a big problem that I have and the industry that I freelance for. You you bring up a powerful point just to reference a cartoon that many may have seen, but it was during, I don't know if it was during COVID or Trump, but there was something major going on in the world, really big. And it was the single framed cartoon of all the media focusing on some minutia, whereas... <clears throat> And there was an elephant in the room. So the elephant, and it had some symbol on it of what was going on in the world. But there is a practice of tuning the public's attention toward one thing and eclipsing or muting whatever, some other things that are going on. And I think there is, there's some food for thought here for the Christian in terms of a spirituality of attentional focus. Scripture says, you know, Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. We need to sometimes interrogate ourselves and to say, what are our eyes fixed on? Are we, and the book was referenced in our last episode, are we um, amusing ourselves to death by what we're focusing on? And I think a lot of what goes on is we are. Do Are we watching the news because we want to be able to act on the information that we are receiving? Or is it fundamentally news as a form of entertainment? That would be another question I'd ask for Christians as well, is am I watching this because I want to be an actor in God's world, bringing about the good of God's good into God's world for the glory of God? Or am I watching it as a form of entertainment? I have no intention of acting on the information I'm receiving. So I, th- I think it is a question of a spirituality of attentional focus. Good. Lee, on that uh, on that question about the news, did you have any comments? <clears throat> uh, yeah, when we think about objective journalism, it emerged as a convention more out of some practical considerations. In uh, the 1800s, maybe early 1800s, the newspapers were stridently uh, of a certain perspective. And then someone came along and thought, huh, well, if we were even-handed, we could market the entire public instead of this segment, so let's do that. (laughs) So this whole convention of objective journalism was more a byproduct to sell more advertising to some extent. So the problems that we're facing now, they're not entirely new. I I think that we do click on things, and on now that we have the power to really choose our news instead of it being handed to us in a broadcast or 
the entire, you have to buy the entire paper to get any part of it. Some of that has just, it, it has empowered us to make choices. And we do click on things that we find uh, eye-catching, entertaining, and they're only as, um, as high-minded as we are. So I'm not sure if the, the solution is entirely to try to go back um, as much as it might be to have uh, the compelling journalism be entertaining and so there's a, a role both for the producers of journalism and for the individual news reader. I do find it interesting to have it mentioned here that when we think about, uh, do we just watch news as an end in itself? There is, just like learning, there's an inherent value in just finding something out and knowing. But I do think that a lot of the times we can become uh, consumers just as an end itself we just take in news with no no um thinking of what we might do with it and so people send me videos you should watch this you should do that and i told someone about two weeks ago i said i encourage you to tithe what you watch so if you're going to watch a, an hour 40 minute video do you pray for 10 minutes about what it is you just learned about because i said when i do that i realize that i did more in those 10 minutes to actually impact the world than I did the hour 40 that I was watching the video. Because there's some things that we, <laughs> it is it is above our pay scale. We may care about them, but we are in no position to do much of anything about it. Uh, but God is, and he has given this dominion to us to take care of. And if we want his help, we have to ask him. And if we ask him, he will intervene. And if we don't, he won't. And it, we know what powers that be spiritually would be on the other side. So, yeah, we need to be engaged and we need to be active and not just passive consumers uh, of the news. To touch on the one, one of the comments you made there, Lee, about tuning in for our own entertainment. I remember there was a lawsuit by I think it was One American News uh, they sued MSNBC and one of their hosts named Rachel Maddow uh, for libel, I believe. And the judge, whether to protect MSNBC or Rachel Maddow from paying out a whatever, something in their litigation, or because this was the truth, said that nobody tunes into MSNBC or to Rachel Maddow to get the news. It, they tune in in order to sort of like what Lee says to be entertained something along those lines there and then they were found not guilty and so the idea being that what somebody parading as a news network can say something libelous because nobody treats them seriously is kind of the the bottom line there but MSNBC has huge viewership and this is a great example of people that need to get fed a certain group of talking points that's why they'll go there and of course a lot of it will be libelous excellent thank you um and moving on with these questions i think uh, and bringing it back to our viewers um imagining that you're talking directly to them <clears throat> uh, jeff and lee do you think uh the news outlets that most people um most people view, the media that most people view, gave our public the information they needed to make informed decisions 
about what was going on. Do you think the news media did that, in your opinion, as you observed and lived Are we talking about the COVID years? Yes, the COVID years. No, of course not. I don't think anybody would probably say that outside of... Uh, no rational person would say that outside of somebody who works in the media who wants to pretend that the job they do is stellar. There's no, I mean, we talked about it in the last episode as well, that we don't have the CBC. They would only hire experts that were funded uh, by a particular, you know, in um, so that their their opinions were all going to be in unison. And that's what all networks do now when they bring a, an expert on. It's to be there to back up the, the the narrative that they want to convey to their listeners. You know, we're all kind of wondering, how did everyone sing from the same yes. song sheet? And I do think that there are a few so-called gatekeepers out there. I think there is a few, and you don't need really that many of them. You just need the right ones in the right places to make the rest follow. Um, when we talked to, and Jeff and I both talked to Anita Krishna, who was a producer at Global, who <laughs> she just challenged them internally so many times they fired her pretty much uh, in Burnaby. But she, she was asking all the questions, and she told the National Citizens Inquiry this, but she was asking all the questions that some of us were wishing someone asked. You know, she's like, why, are, why aren't we going to the businesses and saying, how, how is this affecting you, this lockdown? Like, do you think it's fair? Do you think it's proportionate to the actual threat that's out there? These kinds of things, no, they, they didn't want to do it. Then she talked to them about, well, what about um, uh, ivermectin was uh, used widely in a province in India, and they hardly had any cases at all. Oh, well, that's been debunked. What do you mean it's been debunked? She said, you know, and, and she's relaying these conversations. And to me, her testimony was one of the best windows we have into how this actually works behind closed doors and you know it, it seemed to me that almost all of it was just that they they drank the same kool-aid as the public did and then fed it to the public deceiving others and being deceived and so that's why um okay so i have a question here when you say deceiving others so give me the line that you imagine her superior would have said to her as to why she's not to raise these questions well, uh, I mean, she told us what they were, and, and basically, you know, it, it was annoying. It was annoying. Stop talking about it. We're but doing is it, it this because way, they and if you don't like it... Because they seriously believe that we are in a crisis, and that if you undermine this, you cause vaccine hesitancy, or would the line be, well, if I, if no. I let you go on like this, which is actually our profession and should be okay, I'll get fired, or I'll get pressure from above. And if you, you know, can you, can you trace that line up there? Like, where, where is well, that going? Well, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is it is like that. Uh, vaccine hesitancy. They first of all, once for evil to perpetuate itself, you need to uh, get some moral inversion somewhere, because humans are inherently moral, just the way they're inherently linguistic, as uh, Noam Chomsky found out. And um, but what feeds that uh, those linguistics and what feeds that morality may be different, and. You need to basically convince something, someone that doing what is bad is actually good and for the good of everyone. Mm -hmm. And um, that, that's how these things happen. Uh, there's some people who know they're absolutely selfish uh, or they're serving a set of interests that won't be good for everyone. But 
for whatever reason, self-interest, coercion, preservation, they follow those too. Um, when you're a community station, you have all of these relationships. Government buys a lot of your advertising. Corporations do. With news, it's been well established that the viewership tends to be older, and it's older people that buy pharmaceuticals. So uh, there were, are networks that if, if you said something, if you had a story that was bad about a pharmaceutical, it either won't run, or if it did, that would be your last one you did for them. So most of the time, these unwritten rules never need to be enforced because people who want to keep their jobs will live and act that way. But I think with this one, they really did believe that they went with the thinking of, if we tell someone this, then they may do that. And if they do that, then this will be bad, uh, bad for society, bad for our revenues. And also, when you sort of go off script, there's some strange powers of conformity at work. So when Jeff was talking earlier about how the networks or the newspapers would always have pretty much the same story. It's because of the sense of what is relevant and what is news. Uh, no one told them what it was, but they had sort of a shared sense. And if you went too far off script, uh, not off script, but off of these conventions, off of this thinking, um, you would seem to be so sort of out of sync and maybe not doing your job right. And so mm -hmm. this sort of group think can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. So I, I, I think that, um, there were there were reasons that were both uh, practical for their financial well-being, but also um, their sense of of the consequences of their actions. So for myself, uh, sitting back from this, I would say, you know what? Uh, it's up to individuals to make their own decisions and let's give them the information to think about both sides and leave the decision with them. And we don't have any kind of moral uh, problem with the decision they end up making. And that's where I would want to leave things if I was in charge. Lee, I don't know if you've seen uh, these YouTube compilations or Instagram compilations of um, media outlets from all around North America and even uh, in the Western world generally. And they were spouting identical phrases around certain COVID things and or political things. They, I, I, and they're like they put them one against the other against the other, and then they harmonize the voices. And you're going, how is it that they're not getting fed from all the same source? They were identical phrases. Have you seen those? Oh, no. And how yes, do we I understand and, and those? In those cases, they are. In okay. those cases, they are because all those. Uh, channels those particular stations were owned by the same person so uh they this was a commentary that they all had to say mm. so that was just part of their job so they said it it was a script yeah, yeah it's known okay. to be that way and some of them were ironically even about media is important for our democracy and they're, and they're all saying the same thing <laughs> That's you know? right. so it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah um now there's other uh less obvious ways that this this may go out um i mean wire services uh, will put out news and boy, if you control the wire service, uh, if you give it to them, they get it. And if they don't, they'll never see it, uh, for some of this. And again, the, the amount of time there's just, these journalistic organizations are much more bare bones than, uh, than most people would think. They basically do barely enough to get the job done. Uh, and it's not so important from uh, an organizational or a profit standpoint that it's done well, it just has to be done well enough to keep the viewership. Mm. So uh, what makes news? Well, a lot of the time, if you're in broadcast, you're chasing the press releases because the news director comes out in the morning and says, this is what's happening today. 
and they know if you go to that event, you'll get something. It, it might be kind of fluffy, but you will get it, and the people will be there, and the, the PR people know how to make a nice backdrop, and you know they kind of know what you're looking for, so they kind of hand it to you. Um, I always think churches could do much better with this, with some media training than they do, because there are things they do that if they gave a press release, if they told the right people, if they knew to sort of hand it to them in, in a way that it's sort of, um, they know what they're getting and it's a bit prepackaged, they could get their message out a lot more. But despite being a message-based organization, uh, churches don't tend to do that because they just don't think in those directions. Hmm. Do you have a, a book recommendation uh, for pastors or theologians to read that might help them with this? No, I should probably write it. That would be really helpful. Um, a theology of the media for churches or something like that, or or media hacks for uh, dumb theologians. Well, I, I've often thought that if you look at Jesus's interactions with the Pharisees, mm -hmm. um, I don't know if it made the final edit, but this one I just wrote about Polyev, the CBC and the MSM, um, I really see it's the same way. They, it's the same thing. They are trying to trap him in something he might say. Yes. That, that's exactly what's going on. And uh, and I'm not saying uh, Polyev is Jesus, but uh, he sure is ready for it. And when Jesus said, be shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves, we need to think like that. That's we right. need to think that there are agendas in this world where they are completely shrewd. There, there are no ethics except... Um, as uh, Rules for Radicals said, the only unethical thing to do is to do nothing. Mm -hmm. Everything else, the ends are, uh, the means are justified by the ends. Mm -hmm. So this is the kind of uh, enemy that we grapple with in a spiritual sense mm -hmm. and that plays out in the institutions of this world. But I think that, you know, we can learn a lot about PR through the Bible That's because right. Jesus had his message that he was sending out and the kinds of uh, power interests that were threatened by that and the things that they did to, you know, raise the crowd against him at the crucifixion, things like this, these sorts of things play out all over the place. We just haven't, it's just a, another part of the Bible that we haven't thought to uh, mine from it, uh, the things that have always been there. I, I did preach a sermon on Numbers 13 where the spies go into the land, you'll remember the story. They're sent by Moses into the land to see how the land is before they've actually occupied it. And um, all 12 of them come back, and there's a majority report, and there's a minority report. And you'll remember that the majority report is that, yes, yes, it's true, the land is flowing with milk and honey, it's beautiful, it's wonderful. However, the inhabitants of the land are huge, they're massive, they're going to overpower us. The minority report starts speaking in Joshua and Caleb, and they say, no, no, we will overtake the land. God is giving us the land. And then the majority port comes back, and they use, they use rhetorical um, and propaganda tools. And they're like, we were like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And they instill fear in the hearts of the people. And they say, not only we were grasshoppers in our own eyes, but they saw us that way too. And if you're a careful reader, you go, how did they know that? How did they know how they're, the occupants of the land were viewing them as grasshoppers? This is, this is rhetoric uh, in its greatest form. So yes, just underlining Lee that there is a lot to be learned from Scripture in this regard. I think you're right on. I saw an episode of the original Star Trek recently where, it, even though it was made 50-some years ago, 
where these children were deceived by this angel and they do a little chant or whatever and it would show up and tell it what to do and what and he gave them the power to uh play on people's fears hmm. and in the episode captain kirk he's beat once he beats his fears and and it's not going to work on him anymore he's trying to convince other people of the truth and the ways that this happened i mean whoever wrote this is brilliant as to how these things really work he's talking to his one guy who's sort of a security guard there on the bridge and the message is all garbled he can't even understand what he's saying um the other ones are just so paralyzed with their own fears that have been played on uh they call them their beasts Mm. Uh, that they, they're powerless to respond because they can't think or act rationally now. That's right. And that's why Bernays said that the PR PR will always work because uh, it plays on the basic human needs and motivations. And he said, no matter how savvy the public gets, uh, the propagandists will always be one step ahead of them. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we can... You know, I don't want to bring this up again, um, but just for a minute, how deeply we're shaped, too, um, by this propaganda. As you say, we keep saying these things, right, before and after COVID, as if there actually had been, you know, a, a deadly uh, COVID pandemic that would have mowed us all down had the government not intervened and so on. Like, it's not true. There never was. I mean, not, I'm not, you know, nobody denies a viral outbreak, but the, the hype and then that you can actually switch it off you know, at a certain time, so that we now all say we're past COVID, although everybody knows this is still going on. Uh, it's just we stopped hyping it up now. I mean, that just shows you how deep this goes, and we're all, our language is careless. Like, our language is already uh, buying this. You know, it's really interesting. Right. Well, this was the Y2K of our times, and I look back to see, okay, oh my gosh, this thing has two digits instead of four, and now the world is going to end unless we fix it then nothing happens. Yeah. So did, did did we figure it out? So then I'm looking back to see if what the reflection was on this. And maybe stuff gets taken off the net after 20 years. I mean, they don't keep these things up indefinitely for no reason. But all I could find of any decent reflection was basically a, a paper in the UK about January 6th, 2000, saying, so this turned out to be nothing. So was it all always nothing or was it was because he responded to it uh, and got ahead of it what do you think and you know there was a lot of people who said well uh you know we did kind of get ahead of it there's others who said no this was fake from the start um so it's interesting how even when you think something is really obvious um no they may not recognize what what had really happened so there's that saying there's people who make things happen there's people who watch things happen and there's people who wonder what happened. Uh, there's some people that I think a lot of people, they don't even wonder what happened. They just, it, <laughs> they just kind of move on from it and don't even, don't even get the lessons from it that they should. Yes. And I think some of that's going on absolutely um, with the pandemic. You know, Jesus, Jesus said that money is the root of all evil. And I've heard people say sometimes with trying to discern what's been going on in the media, what's been going on elsewhere, to follow the money. Is that kind of a maxim or a motto that journalists have? It's like, you know what, what, is it important to follow the money? Should that be good journalistic practice as part of a critical apparatus in trying to figure out what's going on? Well, when you're evaluating how you're supposed to cover a story, at least when I was trained, you would look at as many different angles as you can. 
And obviously, money plays a role in a lot of things. I mean, I covered a press conference for a winery that shut down in in Surrey. And I can't remember at all, but largely it had to do with they, they weren't getting permits to develop their the additional property and the taxes were too high and they were just going to move to a place that was going to be more profitable. But, you know, the money is the root of all kinds of evil is, is something that we all say and know. Mm-hmm. If we're going to... Uh, dive into something and be an investigative reporter, then that would be one of the threads we would approach. But today's journalist typically doesn't have time to research that. It's, uh, you don't make a lot of money. So you, how do you, and they want it out in the internet quickly, especially if it happened, news happened today. So maybe later on you can get a side story that has explored that. But for the most part, it's, it doesn't get covered so much, I would argue. I think that's important. I don't think we've really emphasized this enough. So, uh, so there is a there is a propaganda. There probably is some kind of a con- orchestrated uh, narrative that is pursued and uh, others uh, are suppressed. But I just want to hear from both of you, uh, uh, if you will, a confirmation or correction of the fact that journalism does did it used to pay better to do investigative journalism was more uh, a favored through uh, a salary and incentives. Um, and that has somehow changed over the over the years, and so that you're now more uh, liable to just repackage stuff because you simply don't get paid for for proper journalism. Oh, I, I definitely say so. Uh, you know, a friend of mine who worked for papers in Abbotsford, and now he does sports for one of the universities. He does the PR for them. The amount of stuff that he had to do was just enormous, mm-hmm. and. Uh, it seems to me there was a paper in Ireland or the UK where somebody even got the headline wrong. I mean, it, it was in, in a way that was so obvious. And an old school editor said, yeah, these institutions are so, you know, it's it's a wonder it hasn't happened more often because they're just so bare bones. Um, I, the reason I think it's gotten this way, ironically, is that um, I think the Internet's had a lot to do with it. But to some extent, even when cable TV came on, it grabbed a lot of people's eyes and ears. So uh, the the news, I remember one guy at CTV telling me who was an anchor, he says that there used to be a brick wall between sales and news in this station. And he says, now that wall is paper thin. And in fact, one time I remember doing an event where I think it was SaskTel was um, doing something in the park and some face painting. And he said, when you're done with it in news, give the tape over to uh, the sales department, you know, because they might want to use it later for a commercial. Right. Um, so that relationship, just out of the, the sheer pragmatism, uh, they, they've had to become a lot more shrewd. And so a lot of it becomes the practical consideration of keeping this machine going more than um, the detached ideas of what journalism should be. Um, when Conrad Black took over the papers, he fired pretty much a third of the staff, and they called it Black Friday because he fired them all on a Friday. But even then, uh, the margins were so thin that, I mean, he ended up selling the National Post. So 
Yeah, it's not the same thing it was. Um, north of me, um, halfway between Regina and Saskatoon, there's a community of four or 5,000 called Davidson. Uh, they were selling their local paper for $1. And because you don't need the classifieds anymore. You go on Facebook Marketplace and you can find whatever you want or Kijiji or Craigslist. So, you know, these sorts of innovations have just taken away a lot of the revenue streams. So that's why it's become beholden to whoever can pay them to say something. So, so can I show, before mm-hmm. Jeff, and I want Jeff to uh, answer as well, but um, if if that's the case, then if real journalism no longer pays and you need to just kind of produce content, can I throw in AI? Like, to what extent will chatbots write simply that kind of bland fodder? I mean, how can you distinguish it from real journalism if real journalism no longer exists so you just i could produce content at infinitum at an incredible cheap rate uh that way do you see any of do you see a trend that way at all i do jeff what do you think the integrity in this industry doesn't exist anymore so it would not surprise me if there's already content being produced by artificial intelligence uh I will add to one other feature that hasn't been brought up, though. With Epic Times, and I'm sure with most newsrooms, the copy editing staff is very thin. And so a lot of the stories that I pitch, like I say, I have a long shelf life with what I'm going to do because I'm going to do multiple interviews, lots of research that those stories are going to take a lot of time up from the copy editor to fact check and research and, and edit. And I will be turned down a lot of the stories that I pitch to see that other Epic times writers will end up getting. And I know it is because he doesn't want his copy editing staff to be taking up all this time with my story when they could do it, you know, three or four other stories, perhaps. So that's another constraint a newsroom will have is you've got, you need your reporters out there tracking the stories down, but you don't have the time in your editorial staff to try and vet them. And so if you have a lot smaller stories or a lot less to have to investigate. So that's, that, that's where AI might also come in. I was just thinking. Yeah, I mean, I haven't. I think that there's potential there. And I've often thought maybe I should just invest a little money, get one of these AI things. If I have a source article that I want to have be the basis of it, uh, just have it work with that or some set of information and then just kind of um, retailer it to the if I think the bent needs to be different and then submit it. And I I do think that you're right uh, when you said earlier that you could have a whole lot of content put out pretty easily. And I think it could almost come to the place where it's all just putting out the content by itself. You know, a lot of the trading on the stock market is done by that. It's just AI programs that are just doing it based on trends. And so, and of course, if you own the media, you can create the headline that will create the reaction. So you can be ahead of the whole thing. Um, You don't need to be the Rothschilds at the, Battle of Waterloo, knowing through your couriers what's happened and and taking advantage of it, um, you know it, it 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 happens on a smaller scale all the time now. Wow! All right. As what we, I was gonna uh, 
let, let me just interject once here because I had an idea, um, just a thought. You know, churches hire pastors to pay attention to the truth of God's Word, and they're given the leisure to study, to read, to reflect, hopefully. This is, I'm talking in an ideal sense, not the pastor as CEO, pastor as a minister of the Word, to reflect, to contemplate, and then to write carefully, thoughtfully, deliberatively, prayerfully, and present what one has been given from the Spirit of God to the people of God, in an ideal sense. What if philanthropists today, Christian philanthropists, would say, you know, we need to treat journalists in the same fashion. We need a cadre of Christian journalists who are going to be given a good, healthy, robust paycheck that they can actually have a standard of living on, and we're going to give them the time to do really good research, uh, to be able to footnote their journal papers, um, and uh, and then to be able to give that back to the public. I don't know if it's pie in the sky. I know that Christian schools uh, went through the same sort of thing. There was a long time where Christian school teachers were paid the lowest of the low, and uh, there came a time when they said, no, you know what, if we're going to maintain Christian schools, we have to maintain Christian school teachers, and therefore there needs to be a grander sacrifice of God's people to support them. Maybe we're coming to an era where we need to do the same. And I'm not addressing the AI thing. I have no idea how that factors in here. Um, but it is, it's a big question in university settings right now with students using AI to write their papers and all the like of that. It's, uh, it, it's given us a power that is beyond my understanding at the moment of how it's going to play out. But goodness me. I mean, historically, Ed, the, the reason that newspapers went the way of the dodo bird is because people no longer read the articles. I mean, I remember, uh, you know, growing up in Germany, we had fantastic uh, newspapers. They were almost like little books. You could hardly read all the stuff that was in there. Very good articles in there. Philosophers would write in there, cultural critics, and so on. Really profound material. You have a science section that was really, really good. Um, and then the internet comes on, and did the quick content of the internet, and people just don't read that anymore. And so journalists are no, not paid anymore. And so, you know, the whole thing shrank into oblivion. Yes. And now we're all on the format and attention span and length of basically these kind of internet snippets. Yeah. 15 That's, seconds. Yeah. So I don't know how, how we could, you know, reform people's habits. There's bigger questions. In order to appreciate, yeah. like, these guys here, if they do the work. I don't know. Anyway. I got a question for you, Ed. Does uh, Trinity have a journalism program? I don't know. I don't think so. <clears throat> Back when I studied, there's very few journalism programs out there. There's a lot more now, no, but I'm going to guess, because I've often wondered, like, why are Christians so underrepresented in this industry? And I wonder if maybe some of these areas where Christians could have influence if they were a part of it, maybe part of it needs to be that we start taking our Christian universities and, uh, and start putting them, you know, putting these programs together. Yeah. I mean, uh, I know we had the big issue at Trinity with the uh, the law degree yeah. and uh, and and uh, teachers yeah. and so on. But th these are people that are impacting our society, That's and uh, certainly journalism. As we've been exploring these two episodes, mm -hmm. uh, there's again, I, I'm going to keep saying it that doesn't have integrity. Our reputation is terrible, and it's for good reason. But I wonder if we had more Christian influence in in writing, in editorial uh, content, in decision-making, maybe uh, we would have a better impact. That's a great point. 
So, um, well, we are the salt of the earth. So, I mean, our role is to to get in there and and prevent things from uh, rotting. Yes, uh, I have often thought about how I think that, for example, um, you know, the Rainbow Lobby has done it does a way better job at leveraging their few numbers and using uh, the institutions of influence and really going after them. Uh, in ways that we just don't think of. we I think a lot of uh, Christianity um, in the terms of, in the ways we think of it and the structures of it and church is to just uh, have a congregation, um, try to in put in the biblical teachings to them and then kind of let them live uh, their lives out in the world. Uh, and I think these kind of larger level, more strategic things, there's definitely a place for them. I remember Charles Lugosi, who's a lawyer, he said uh, he talked to the Christian Heritage Party at a meeting in Vancouver Island that I got invited to. And he said, you know, there was a black uh, college in the United States that had a 30 year plan to get rid of segregation. And they knew they had a, an idea. What kind of case could we win? And then that would pave the way for this kind of case and that kind of case and that kind of case until we could legally get rid of it. And they succeeded. Uh, he says. I could conceive of a path we could do this for a lot of the issues that we just keep losing ground on. And he said it wouldn't take that much money, like in the big scheme of things. It it, it wouldn't be, a, a you know, he says maybe 300,000 or something. I, I can't remember what the number was. But um, and I thought, you know, there's enough congregations out there that, boy, if all of them just gave one percent to this, uh, we could get there. But I, I've kind of decided the local church is, is it's important, but it's not the vehicle for a lot of these things. Some people want pastors to have uh, the role of maybe what we might think of as apostles. Um, it, it's pastors have a local leadership that is very important. Um, and the structure of the church and meeting weekly is very important. But I think that some of these structures just need to be on a bigger level. Um, heck, writing for Western Standard, it's $100 a year to subscribe. Uh, and I've got a friend who says, you know, this is, I like these headlines. And he says, I get curious, but he says, I'm, I'm kind of cagey and I, I don't want to pay for it. Well, OK, but if we think about what the terms of of influence is for the kingdom, maybe that's something we should be putting money towards. That's right. And that's for everyone to decide. That's right. So <clears throat> I think we're probably getting pretty close to winding this segment up. So I'd like to ask you both a more personal uh, question. You both are Christians working in a very difficult field that's dominated by the secular, uh, leftist, liberal uh, worldview. So how do you maintain your integrity? How do you see your, your job in that situation? Do you see it as a, uh, do you have a prophetic role or something else? Or how do you maintain your integrity um, in that? Just a, a, a bit of a personal reflection on how you view your, is it a calling or is it just a career or a job or how do you view all of this uh, as you work in this difficult environment? Lee, Here's you go Jeff. first. No, you, you probably go first because this is your career. So I just do this part <laughs> well, time. Uh, those are some very good things to think. Do I see my role as prophetic? Actually, I do. And if I'm not being prophetic, I am not doing what God actually called me to do. And I don't say this necessarily in the way of hearing God's voice and, and saying it, but in terms of speaking for him. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's why, I mean, this platform, thank you for having this podcast, because this is something that 
this is a medium by which to do it. Um, I think, I think in every, I think every person who has a role, any kind of vocation, that it should be something that they view as doing unto the Lord. Mm -hmm. And that's what we see in, in, you know, whatever you do, do with all your heart is working for the Lord and not for men. So I do think that there is a, uh, there is an element of calling that we should all sense and do. Um, do I feel like I'm where God wants me to be? Yeah, uh, I do. And I think if I'm faithful to it and continue to be close to him and grow in the areas of my character, then I will be able to bear more of the responsibility and be entrusted with more of the impact. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we are where we're at. Um, one of the things I've thought of is there's more opportunities now in some way. So I, I don't find like I'm in an adverse environment uh, because I'm in the alt space. And so uh, Frontier and I are, Center and I are aligned on a lot of issues, most issues. So, I mean, if I think something, boy, they, they think it's great and I wrote it well and they like it. Uh, if I'm with Western Standard, a lot of the readership there likes it. Um, you can probably get more Christian stuff as it comes up there than you might have in other places. Um, and um, where there those opportunities, and, and I think Epic Times is too, even though there seems to be some kind of Falun Gong uh, influence, which may be overstated if you do Google searches on this. But even though there's some of that, there's, there is such a wide open door for saying things like God created the world, um, traditional family values. I mean, whatever the philosophy is that is behind it, there is a wonderful open door there. So I feel like I'm in the right place. And I used to, you know, sometimes I thought, oh boy, if I'd played my cards differently, I could have been a TV anchor or something. I'm so glad I'm not a TV anchor now. I would so much rather be in this space than have to deal with the politics and the restrictions and just feeling like I'm Mr. Muzzled because mm. I don't. In my case, Ivan, I studied this 35 years ago. I worked in the field for a handful of years before leaving, and I only re-entered this two years ago. And so I had a huge gap. Uh, I became a Christian in that time. So I'm 53 right now, and uh, I was 28 when I became a Christian. And at that time, I regretted that I didn't stay in journalism because I thought I could have had such a big impact on for God that I no longer had because I didn't do it. Now, I felt a strong calling to get back into journalism. I, got, I felt a, a strong calling to get back into journalism because of how it's become so corrupted. And as you know, the rust has kind of been coming off and everything. I wasn't sure. Is it possible that I was trained 35 years ago to do something God needs me to do today? That could be my ego talking as well. So I'm still evaluating that. But my uh, the people who have responded to me, for the most part, have been very accepting and I'm not influenced or concerned about those who hear that I write for Epic Times and think that I'm you know, a hack or whatever. So with that said, I would like to embrace the same thing that Lee has mentioned. I mean, my ultimate employer is God. I don't rely on this job for my for money, even though they do pay me for articles that I submit. But he's the one that's uh, obviously my employer, or that's how I see it. And so when I am trying to be a professional, I know I have to keep that in mind. 
So for me, it's not a, I don't feel that there's any conflict or struggle. Um, and I guess like Lee, for the most part, I, my sense is I'm, whether I made the decision or I was nudged by God, uh, he can still use me and hopefully will. Wherever we are called, we are called to be faithful, and I'm grateful that uh, the two of you, insofar as you've been called to be journalists, are seeking to be faithful and to represent the truth as best you can in order to benefit humanity and ultimately build the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, thank you so much. It's been a delight to speak with you, to get to know you both a little bit better, and also to glean from your wisdom. We pray God's blessing over you. And once again, over our listeners, we also pray God's blessing over you. The Lord be with you.